0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Kreisler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest is uh, Paul Butler, who is the Brick Professor of Law at Georgetown University and the author of among other books, Chokehold. Paul, welcome to Berkeley.
1: Thanks, Harry. It's great to be here.
0: Looking back, uh, how did your growing up years shape you? In particular, where were you born and where were you raised?
1: I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Grew up during the 1960s and 70s. When Martin Luther King came to Chicago, he said it was the most segregated city he'd ever seen. He said, It felt in some ways more anti-black than places like Birmingham did. Uh, I certainly understood the segregation. When I grew up, I could walk for blocks and blocks and never see a person who wasn't African-American, except maybe a police officer. It was a, a wonderful, nurturing, and occasionally dangerous community to grow up in but I can't imagine that I would rather have grown up anywhere else but that warm, nurturing, vibrant, hardworking, resilient uh, community on the south side of Chicago.
0: And looking back, uh, how did your mother shape your thinking about the world in that environment?
1: Both of my parents were African-American people who understood the history of anti-black racism and violence in Chicago and in the United States. And they also wanted, like every parent, for my sister and I to do better than they had, to go further than they had. So at the same time that we were educated on the realities of racial subordination and the ways that in some ways um, our opportunities might be limited uh, by anti-black discrimination. Uh, they raised us to believe that we could do anything and that we came from a strong people and a strong family. And so we were supposed to be aware of the realities of the tough world out there, but at the same time have a steadfast confidence in our own ability To change things. And my parents were part of that change. My mother was a public school teacher in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so in her day-to-day work, uh, she helped especially African-American kids who were the main kids at the segregated schools where she taught, also have a vision of ways that they could aspire to great heights, to heights that were Um, beyond the limits of the South Side of Chicago. So, again, I think I had a a firm consciousness in racial justice uh, from the beginning, a strong belief in in family, and and a steadfast confidence in my own ability. And that all comes from my parents.
0: So, So you were learning to believe in and appreciate the American dream, but in an environment in which... That dream wasn't being completely realized in the broader community, not in your family. I mean, not speaking of your family.
1: You know, we used to fly the flag on the 4th of July and Memorial Day. And I look back and think, well, this is the woman who uh, took me to marches with both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And who based on her own lived experiences was quite cynical about the ability of, of many white people to overcome racism. But at the same time, we were among the few families in our block that flew this flag uh, proudly on these holidays. And so if you were to go inside that house where the flag was flying, you see in the living room a, fa- a framed portrait of Angela Davis, uh, the African-American uh, former political prisoner, uh, revolutionary, who I know has a a proud heritage right here in in California, Northern California. But all of these were going on at the same time. The flag outside, the portrait of Angela Davis inside, um, this recognition of both the power of subordination and the power of my people, of our people, all of that, all of that dynamic in that little house on the south side of Chicago.
0: And, and who did you look to beyond your family for mentoring, as heroes, historical figures, teachers, and so on? You
1: know, I certainly look to the people in my community. It's kind of a commonplace now that back in the day folks were raised not just by the mom and/or dad inside the house, but by the entire neighborhood. Uh, that is something that elders often talk about as being an especial uh, privilege of what it's like to grow up in an African-American community where the whole community takes responsibility for you. And that was certainly a large part of my coming up. I remember neighbors who uh, were proud of me uh, when I did well in school who when they saw me and my sister having an argument would intervene even if my mom wasn't around, who beamed at me when I was like uh, mowing the lawn and who frowned at me when I was like out maybe later than they thought I should have been out. So before I get to like my heroes who are well known, I want to, you know, shout out and give honor to those everyday folks in what a lot of people would consider the hood who took good care of children. You know, so often we look at African-American communities, black men, black women, through what some scholars have called a, a damage perspective or a damaged friend, where we look at people from these communities and we think, oh, that's so unfortunate, or, oh, it's too bad that people have to go through that. Uh, what I want to do is to highlight the resilience of that community and the profound wisdom and know-how of that whole village where I was raised. And also read books by people like James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, and Tozaki Shange. And so when I got to college, um, I found a whole other set of, of heroes and people to be inspired by. And certainly when I was a kid, Muhammad Ali, he was the man, right? So again, that confidence, that pride in being African-American. So uh, I look at a range of people as mentors and heroes.
0: And you went to undergraduate uh, at Yale. Uh, Talk a little about that experience. What did you major in?
1: I majored in economics and political science, but was able to take a lot of classes in English and in African-American studies. So that was the first time I'd been outside of the city of Chicago for an extended period. First time I lived anywhere else. The first time I'd been around a bunch of non-black people on a day-to-day basis. So it was an, it was an adjustment and it was a joy. I loved college. I love going to Yale. Um, there was a critical mass of people of color, which I think is so important when we look at uh, how to make sure that everybody uh, gets the most out of the university experience. And especially when we look at people who traditionally, uh, who come from backgrounds where they traditionally haven't been represented in elite institutions like Yale and like Berkeley. One of the things that made Yale such a great experience for me is that there were uh, several other black students, not like three or four, uh, but I think in my class there might have been 50 or 60 other African-American students, then there were Latinx students, Asian-American students, and white students, and so there was a great diversity. And I never felt when I was in college that I had to, to speak, as an African-American or as a black man because there were other black men and other African-American students around me so that everyone could appreciate, even within this group of, let's say, black men, there's a diversity of experiences, of perspectives. And one of the concerns I have when I come to places like Berkeley where I know there have been... uh, retrenchment with regard to the diversity of the student body and especially with regard to African Americans because of of state laws and policies. And I'm concerned that at places like Berkeley uh, as great as the institution is and as much as uh, as many resources as they have, uh, when these resources are are shut out uh, to African American students in, in ways that happen with regard to retrenchment that that's obviously bad for, for black students. It turns out it's bad for all students when, again, there's not a diversity of backgrounds and experiences. What, what years were you at Yale? I was at Yale in the, um, in the early 80s.
0: In the early 80s. And then
1: you went to Harvard Law School. I did, yes.
0: Okay. And uh, what did you get out of that Harvard Law experience? Had, had you already been bitten by the legal bug?
1: Bitten by the legal bug might be an overstatement. I thought uh, I wanted to be a lawyer to see if I could make change from within. Uh, A lot of my heroes were people who I think were skeptical about law. So Audre Lorde famously said, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. Well, I went to law school to see if she was right or if it might actually be possible uh, to use tools like law as instruments to try to create racial justice and social justice, to try to transform society. So I I went to law school as an optimist. I hoped that I might be able to make a difference in my community and make a difference in the world. And I went also as a little bit of a realist that at the same time that I wanted to do good work, I also wanted to be able to support myself and to take care of of myself and my family um, outside of of politics and social justice in some material ways as well. So I wanted to, to make a good living. My mom sometimes would say a lot of people from, backgrounds like mine hear this, the best way to help poor people is not to be one of them, right? (laughs) So I wanted to make a good living, but I also wanted to uh, be part of a project of doing justice, and especially racial justice. And so when I looked at the range of things I could have been interested in, my dad was an actor, and he was part of the black arts movement in Chicago during the 1960s. So he viewed his work, his art, uh, through a political lens, certainly through an aesthetic lens. He was a brilliant actor who made a lot of choices based on his craft. But he also understood the political nature of his work. And I did some acting when I was at Yale Children's Theater, which I loved. I loved to write as well. So when I thought about the range of directions my career could take, acting, teaching, like my mom, being a writer, or being a lawyer, um, a lawyer checked off a lot of boxes. Even then, I was concerned that in some ways my creativity uh, could get dampened by a traditional legal practice. So that was a concern that in some ways, when you're a lawyer, you buy in to some systems that you might not actually believe in. So I went in mainly as an optimist, hoping I could use this tool called law to change from within. But I think I maintained a little bit of skepticism uh, that I'd wait and see how I did.
0: So, so in a way, your background and all that it involved informed your uh, capacity to get your feet wet in a traditional law firm, but at the same time remaining kind of skeptical about what you can achieve even as you try to change things.
1: You know, I'm sure that there will be students who are are watching this who uh, I want to assure, you know, at this stage, right after law school, thinking about my next steps, there wasn't a master plan. You know, Rakim has a, a famous lyric from one of his rap songs where he says, thinking about a master plan. Well, I wasn't at that moment thinking about a master plan. I was thinking about the... Next step. And looking back, things worked out fine with regard to my career. So often during office hours, I have students, law students, agonizing about what their first job after law school is going to be. And many times I say to those students, it's not that serious. You know, there should be some strategy, right? There should be some goals. But if you don't know when you're 25 or 26 years old what you're going to be doing when you're 40 or when you're 50 or 60 or 70, it's all good. You don't have to know. Part of the, the joy is the journey. And so I thought that for my next step, um, right after law school, I clerked for a judge in New York, an African-American woman who had been the second black woman appointed to the court uh, where she sat, which was the Southern District of New York. And I learned a lot from her, from her own life experiences and from her mentorship as a judge. And her name is? Her her name is Mary Johnson Lowe. And she uh, taught me a lot. She'd been a criminal defense attorney in the Bronx um, during the nineteen. 60s and 70s. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for an African-American woman uh, to be rising through the legal system uh, during that time. And she you know, certainly had an appreciation of the ways that her gender and her race had given her power and authority and confidence. Uh, but it also been used as excuses uh, by other people in the world to, uh, to hold her back. So she came up kind of uh, through some tough times and, and prospered. And she was another source of inspiration to me. You know, it's funny. I had loans when I finished law school. And I was like, "Oh my God, how am I going to be able to pay back these loans?" And my students now laugh when I tell them that my loans were30,000 dollars, which <laughs> nowadays, again, students react the way that you did. How could you have been worried about 30,000 dollars? So yeah, in some ways it was obviously, you know inflation it would have been more than 30,000 dollars in today's uh, money, but still nowhere near the kind of debt that my law students who come from uh, backgrounds where their parents can't afford to pay for Georgetown, uh, those kids have $200,000 loans. And so that's daunting in a way that uh, my 30000 even back in the day, uh, I didn't feel held back. I did feel like I wanted to make some money to pay back those loans and then maybe I could do what I really wanted to do. And that's what led me to joining a law firm in D.C., uh, a great firm that is known for its representation of people who are charged with white-collar crimes. And so many of the uh, folks that I represented at the firm were rich people or rich corporations who were in big trouble with the law and who could hire a firm with all of the resources, both the people resources, some of the best lawyers in the country uh, worked at this firm, and the other kinds of material resources that uh, when you have a case, a criminal case, uh, you need if you're going to have a good outcome. So this is a firm that had clients who could afford investigators to figure out what really happened, uh, who could afford to have lawyers spend the kind of time that lawyers need. And
0: the name of this firm was?
1: Is Williams and Connolly. Yeah. Yes.
0: And uh, but during this period and shortly thereafter, your consciousness, which already was pretty rich emotionally and socially from what you describe, uh, you wound up being a victim in a trial. Uh, and so you were a defendant basically. And that also changed your thinking about the law.
1: Yes. So I was able to make some headway with my loans at this law firm in D.C. And then I decided, okay, now's the time to do what I really want to do, which is to see if I could use my legal skills to create some racial justice, to be part of of a social justice tradition started by lawyers like, Uh, Paulie Murray, and Thurgood Marshall. So now it's my turn. And of all places to do that racial justice work, I chose a prosecutor's office. Uh, Why would I do that? I'd had a number of bad experiences with cops when I was growing up on the south side of Chicago, and even as a young lawyer in D.C., uh, felt kind of looked at by officers in D.C. and New York, like I was a suspect. And Tozaki Shange, a poet I mentioned earlier, has a poem where she says, the suspect is always black and in his early 20s. And I was in my mid-20s at that point. But even with this Yale undergraduate degree and this Harvard J.D., when cops saw me, they still saw a young black man and that's how they treated me. As a threat. As a threat, as a potential threat, as a subject of their hard gaze. And Choco, I call this experience that many black men have of being looked at differently by cops as the hard gaze. And that's something that, you know, I've been aware of since I was a, a boy growing up in Chicago. So, all that's the background for why I went to the prosecutor's office hoping that I could go in as an undercover brother and make a difference from inside. I had a number of experiences there that made me more cynical about the work that prosecutors do and about my ability to be a change agent in that office. So one of those experiences, and the most dramatic was, uh, I was a... Junior lawyer on a team that was prosecuting a United States senator for public corruption. And while I was working on that case, I got arrested and I got prosecuted for a crime that I didn't commit. So you talk about a a revelation, uh, you talk about a situation that's going to rock your world and kind of change your perspective. Uh, getting arrested while you're a prosecutor is one of those situations.
0: And if you're black, you, you're, you enter an entirely different world.
1: In a yeah, way. well as I say in my first book Let's Get Free, A Hip Hop Theory of Justice, where I tell this whole dramatic story of my arrest and I went to a trial and the outcome of the trial and Uh, I'm not going to say exactly how it came out because I want anyone listening to buy that book or get it from the (laughs) library, Let's Get Free, A Hip-Hop Theory of Justice, but I'll give you a hint. Things worked out fine for me, and the reason why when I went to trial and I'm literally just like you see on TV standing up uh, with my lawyer when the jury renders its verdict, the reason that things worked out fine was based on my lawyer. I had the best lawyer in the city and I had her. One reason I had her is because I could afford her. Uh, She was a former public defender who now had her own practice and she was known as the go-to lawyer uh, if you had a criminal case. She agreed to represent me. Things worked out fine for me because I had some status. We made sure that the jury knew some things about me that should not have mattered, like where I went to college and law school, and that I was a prosecutor. Those shouldn't have mattered. That's not what the case was about. The case was a silly little misdemeanor dispute about a parking space. But that kind of status stuff does matter. Things worked out fine for me because I had legal skills. I had literally prosecuted people in the courtroom where I was being prosecuted. The other reason things worked out fine for me is because I was innocent. But when I sat back in the weeks after my trial and thought about everything that happened, the fact that I was innocent, it didn't seem like the most important reason why my case had come out the way it did. I think I almost would have rather been guilty and have Michelle Roberts as my lawyer than have been innocent and had some lousy appointed lawyer or some appointed lawyer who really wanted to do the right thing in my case but couldn't because of the lack of resources that our government puts in defending poor people. So I had an outcome that was different uh, from a lot of other people. But the experience of being arrested and prosecuted is one that too many, uh, especially of my African-American uh, brothers, have to go through. And so I've said that the experience made a man out of me. It made a black man out of me.
0: Just as an aside here, one of the when you one reads your books, you have a, a powerful ability to use metaphor and also a kind of literary analysis to offer insights. So in that first book you talk about a hip hop theory of justice and your Uh, mastering, uh, and you may already have done that, uh, the hip-hop artists. And as I read what you wrote, it struck me that you were almost saying they're prophets, basically, in the biblical sense, in the sense that a a a prophet in the Bible had two purposes. One, to issue a warning, to say these are the terrible things going on, and on the other hand, say, but there is a possibility for a future. Talk talk briefly about that.
1: So hip-hop artists as prophets, that's interesting. I, I certainly had understood some of the work they do as journalism, as on-the-ground reporting. Uh, Chuck D., a famous hip-hop artist, uh, called hip-hop the black CNN. So especially... Uh, During the glory days of hip-hop, the 90s, it was music that was documenting the crack epidemic. It was art that was depicting police violence and the beginnings of this monster uh, called mass incarceration. And so if you were to look at other forms of pop culture, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, you wouldn't know that the United States locks up more people than any country in the history of the world. Uh, If you were to uh, watch a lot of TV or read a lot of magazines back then, uh, you wouldn't know that the United States locks up more black folks, than there were slaves in 1850. But hip hop, then and now, it won't let you forget. Hip hop puts at the center uh, a lot of people who uh, other folks in society would would prefer to forget about. That's why we uh, throw away uh, a lot of these bodies in prisons and jails, 're supposed to be disappeared, and one of the uh, beautiful things about uh, the art form called hip hop is it won't let us forget so even now, if you listen to a hip hop station, uh, there's shout outs to people who are, are locked up right uh, there's this bringing uh, to our memory to our, our space uh, people who are away and a welcoming back when they come home. And so when you start as a law professor, as any kind of academic, you have to write. And oh my God, of all the things, what are you going to write about? Some of the best advice I've gotten is to write about what you can. What is it that you know that nobody else knows? And I don't know if I was the only person, but at the time that I was teaching criminal law, which is very philosophical, why should people be punished is the big question. And you look at philosophers from back in the day like Immanuel Kant and his ideas about retribution and just deserts. And Jeremy Bentham and his thoughts about what's going to be best for everybody in society And I was reading and learning this philosophy at the same time that I was listening to Lil' Kelm and Snoop Dogg and Chuck D. and A Tribe Called Quest. And you know what? They were having the same conversation. They were also talking about justice and safety and the purposes of prison and how it actually worked. And so, there was this dialogue that I thought, who else is going to connect Queen Latifah with Immanuel Kant, and Snoop Dogg with Jeremy Bentham? Well, I thought I can do that, and it's important that I do that because it turns out that a lot of these old school philosophers were right, and it turns out that a lot of these new school philosophers who we call hip-hop artists um, are also right. And I think everyone knew, even then, that hip-hop had a lot to say about the police. But I think what folks didn't get as much is how much of the art was focused on public safety, on families and the damage that the police and the criminal legal process uh, do to families, especially in African-American communities. And so it was rich, it was thoughtful, and what had been laid down on tracks, uh, I wanted to lay down on paper. And so that's why I ended up writing about hip-hop and the criminal legal system in that first book.
0: So uh, at, at this point in your life, you're still something of a reformer, and this leads you to two ways of changing the system to a certain extent. One is nullification if you're on a jury, and the other is breaking up, countering the snitching uh, support system for the uh, – corrupt legal system as it relates to blacks and uh, both of those ideas are building on what's there you know saying okay i'm a lawyer so we need to see what the law tells us we can do that can change things uh is that a fair
1: assessment yes i think that is fair
0: yeah and uh but as time passed you you basically move to a broader critique of this system, which may have been in your mind before, but you didn't yet sort of go all the way. So talk about this this movement toward becoming a professor, remaining in the law, and teaching the next generation, but on the other hand... Uh, essentially uh, saying we really have to do a major reform of the institution. So now you're talking about abolishing prisons. Isn't that kind of scary for many
1: people? It's scary if you think that prison abolition means that tomorrow we go to every jail and prison, and we open every door. Mm-hmm. And that's not what the activists and scholars who have been uh, theorizing prison abolition for the last 150 years, uh, almost no one thinks that the answer is tomorrow, go and lock, unlock every cage. Now, tomorrow, there are a lot of cages that could be unlocked. E- even what I would describe as moderate organizations like the Brennan Center, it's a think tank at New York University, their number is 40%. The ACLU, their number is 50%. And what that means is they say that if 40% or 50% of the people who are incarcerated came home tomorrow that we wouldn't notice. Their families, their loved ones, their communities would welcome them back. So of course they would notice, but it wouldn't have any impact on public safety, and that's because of the kinds of people who are being locked in cages now. Uh, some of those people have committed uh, non-violent offenses. Uh, there are other people who've committed violent offenses who, if they're release, their violent offending time is way past. Uh, One example is that about 10% of people who are locked up now are over the age of 50. All of the evidence we have suggests that if they get to come home, they're not going to be committing crimes. But instead, we have this waste where now prisons are literally opening assisted living facilities for inmates. And so they're just part of this group of the 40 or 50 percent who could come home tomorrow and we'd all be fine. I think what people don't understand about abolition is that it's a a gradual process. Uh, Think of it as a decarceration where we look at ways that we can be safe but not lock up the millions of people that we lock up now in cages. And so there's a lot of evidence from places like California and New York and New Jersey that have reduced their prison populations. In California, you had to do it because your prisons were so inhumanely overcrowded. And there was concern, oh my God. If we let people come home before they serve their sentences, they're going to be out gang-banging and drug-selling and raping. and Well, guess what? None of that happened. So part of the reason is we're locking up a whole bunch of people who we simply don't need to lock up. And so abolitionists, most of them have this concept called the dangerous few. And the dangerous few is the idea that there's a small group of people who will always need to be supervised in order to make sure that they don't cause harm to others. We don't know how big or small this dangerous few is. We know it's much smaller than the 2.3 million people who are incarcerated today. And so the question at the end of the day uh, I want people to think about is, What is it that you think prison does? And are there ways that we could accomplish those purposes without locking up human beings in cages? And if you ask people what they hope prison does, usually they say, well, it keeps us safe from people who would hurt us if they weren't locked up. And that it makes people who caused harm responsible for what they've done. Well, I was a prosecutor. I'm a criminal law professor now. Um, I've had my own experiences in the criminal legal process and people in my family and friends have too. And I think most people who have any knowledge about our criminal law system would say that prison doesn't do either of those effectively. It doesn't keep us safe from people who would hurt us if they weren't locked up and it doesn't make people who have caused harm accountable. And so then the question is, can we use our imagination? If we want to make it uh, an American thing. <laughs> uh, can we use our ingenuity and our creativity to think about ways that we could be safe and that when people have caused harm uh, we can make the victim whole in a way that's meaningful to her or him can we accomplish those without putting people in cages and again I think if this is the country and we're the people that invented hip hop and jazz and gospel music Google, Amazon then I think we can I think we can use all of our our gifts and resources uh, to have a System where people are actually safe and where certain groups don't feel like the police and prosecutors are out to get them, Uh, so we can have a a justice system that really is that. Because now, I don't say criminal justice system because there's nothing just about our system. I talk about a criminal legal process, but I think abolition, prison abolition, is one important way to transform our criminal legal process into a system that is actually just. One
0: final question requiring a short answer. If students watch this tape, what would you like them to learn from your intellectual odyssey?
1: To be brave. Uh, The fact that you are a student uh, gives you a kind of privilege and I think creates a responsibility. Um, I come from a, a faith tradition uh, that counsels to whom much is given, much is required. For myself, I remember my great-great-grandfather, uh, he cleaned outhouses for a living. So his job was literally cleaning up other people's. And now I'm a black man who gets paid to think. So that's... a uh, privilege and it's a responsibility. And I know that a lot of students now, even now are first generation students, um, and they come from communities like mine. They may not be African American. Um, They may be, but they come from uh, groups or uh, people who've been shut out. And now when we get these opportunities, I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure uh, to just go along, to just fit in. Uh, But if our foremothers and our forefathers, if they hadn't been concerned about agitating, uh, about bringing us into these spaces, uh, we wouldn't be here. And the forces that don't want to see black and Latinx people at Berkeley, uh, the forces that don't want to see African American women or transgendered women of color rise and prosper, those forces haven't gone away. And so it's incumbent on all of us to resist subordination, to resist those political forces and economic forces here in California that want to maintain the system where all these people are locked up, or want to maintain the system where uh, most black or Latinx students could never have the opportunity to be in a beautiful campus like Berkeley. So those forces are still out there, and so I think it's up to students to resist to agitate, to fight uh, until we have a country where there really is liberty and justice for all.
0: Professor Butler, on, on that uh, note, uh, thank you for sharing us your, with us your life experiences. It's a great pleasure to have you here as the Jefferson Lecturer.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Really thank enjoyed you. the conversation.
0: Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.